Good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we'll be today. And as you're turning there, I'll just make an appeal to you to consider small group Bible study. Uh, this morning, I was uh, so, so, so encouraged by uh, our Sunday school class. Uh, we, have an, we, have, we have several Sunday school classes. When I was in this morning, uh, the adult mixed Sunday school class that meets here in the worship center, Sam Parker walked us through um, the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus's prayer. And my heart was so encouraged in the word. And I saw things that, I, I, I saw some things more clearly than I think I've seen them before. And I, I just wanted to pass this bit of encouragement on to you to consider being a part of small group Bible study. There's, there's something very special about it. And we have, like I said, the Sunday school classes, and then we have home groups. Uh, today, I think there's four, four home groups that are going to be meeting here and in Hay Springs, one right after the service, uh, several this evening. Um, man, what, what blessings we have to be able to, uh, to study together in small group and talk, you know, because in this, this is good. I like this. I like, obviously, uh, but you don't get to talk here, right? And in small group, you do, and it's really, really good. You could, you could talk if you want here. Anyway, let's look at the Bible. This is Matthew chapter 5, and our text today is verses 27 through 30. And the word of God says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's, let's ask God for his help here this morning. Father, we, we, uh, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from your word. We want to be strengthened by that. We want your word to speak specifically to our hearts. And we want to hear it with faith. And so, Father, I pray that in the next little while you would do that. You would you just unfold this before our eyes and we would leave here with our resolve to fight sin with our eyes fixed on Christ. I pray that there'd be so much gospel clarity here today that we wouldn't, we wouldn't leave confused about what it means to be right with you. We would leave resolved to trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross and to fight sin with all of our might. Oh Lord, I pray that you would do that. And I pray for your help. I'm so aware of, uh, that I'm not worthy to be here. I'm not worthy to be your messenger, not in myself. I'm not powerful enough or compelling enough or any of those things to change hearts. So I don't rely on those Instead, I will choose to rely on your word. And I pray, Father, that your word would do its work, its surgery, its excavation in our hearts this morning. For your glory and for my good and for the good of these. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as I was like trying to prepare for this, I read a whole, 
I read hundreds of pages this week uh, of commentaries. I do, I do most weeks, but I, I read like crazy trying to get my mind around this. You know, I, I, I do all the study and whatever, and then I hit the books. I hit what people have written about this, and I try to understand it. And here is something that I found very interesting this week in particular as I was reading, especially popular level commentaries, you know, just like expositions uh, kind of commentaries. Um, almost all of them begin with some like sort of statement of why this is such a relevant passage given the decadence of our day, given the moral decay of our day. Almost everybody uh, gave some sort of like um, statement like that and then gave reasons or statistics or example stories of a culture that has gone south. The commentaries decry the declining morals we see around us, um, how things aren't the way they used to be. one of my kids said this week, uh, he, he, he said, oh, this new generation. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, that's, that's how people uh, talked in these commentaries, how, how society views morality, how society views intimacy, how society views marriage. What was really interesting to me was that these were all written in different times. Like I read one that was like 75 years old. I read another that was 30 years old, 20 years old. One that, was, that came out two years ago. And they all said the same thing. It's like every age, right? Every age. We feel this, that the society is not where the Bible is, not where God is. The argument is that this is especially relevant now because we live in a society that does not view things the way that the Bible does. And honestly, as I was reading this and thinking through that, I found myself kind of disagreeing with them. That's not why this is relevant. (laughs) The, The reason a passage like this is so relevant isn't because the outside world, or our society, or our country, or our government, or whatever, has radically different views about love and sex and all of that than God does. Although that's true. It isn't because of the declining marital stats or the increasing numbers of cohabitation or the critical views of monogamy and the acceptance of extramarital affairs or the embrace of perversion. It's none of those things. That's not not at the heart of this why this is so germane to us. It isn't because pornography has gone mainstream and is now even recommended. It's even this horrible thing that destroys souls is recommended by so many licensed people helpers. This isn't relevant because the world has made consent the only moral question or limit when it comes to sexual intimacy. The reason you should perk up and listen carefully to this isn't necessarily because of anything out there in society. It's especially relevant to us because of how we view the fight for moral purity in our own lives and our righteousness before God. That's why this is relevant. Jesus is needling into our hearts, not just the world out there. This isn't a condemnation to the world out there. He's needling into my heart and and to, to your heart. And he's exposing our pharisaical righteousness for what it is. Totally insufficient. Totally surface level. Totally worthless. You see, we can read this. You can read this passage just like a Pharisee would read this passage. 
We could, we could read this passage and simply bemoan how wrong everybody else gets it. And that's not different from how the Pharisees read the seventh commandment of the Decalogue, the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. It's not different. That's exactly what they were doing. They would read the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and they would say, others do adultery, not us. Boom! There's our righteousness. You see, we Christians can treat hard attitudes as if they are a small thing and of small consequence. I mean, I've had guys in my office tell me with a straight face, it's not as if I actually did that thing, Mike. I just thought it and imagined it and watched it. I didn't do the final act of it. It was a small S sin, not a capital S sin. And friends, into that spiritual confusion, that pharisaical understanding of purity speaks Christ's words in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. And it ought to shake us like an earthquake. Not because of what goes on out there, but because of what goes on in here. Let me just remind you of what Jesus said right before he launched into this series of teaching on these practical things like anger and lust. We're just walking through the Sermon on the Mount these weeks. And right before he launched into these practical things, in Matthew five twenty, he said this, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the background. That's the background. That's the backdrop of this passage. Jesus is going deep, much deeper with us than the Pharisees went. Jesus takes aim at our hearts and even at the things that we think of like small s sin. They're not small. And in fact, the stakes for us, if we, see, we should see them, they, they cannot be higher I think our aim today should be that we hear Jesus' words carefully and allow them to have their decisive effect in our heart. And I think that if if it does that, if we allow God to work in that way, what, what that will mean is that we will resolve not to be satisfied with the superficial level, the pharisaical righteousness that is so useless, but we will make war on our sin. With a sin with a capital S, all sin, capital S. And do that with our hope and our confidence in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'm praying. That's what I've been praying that where the Lord would take us this morning. Jesus begins by quoting Exodus 20, 14, verbatim. Um, this is the command that all his listeners had heard. And, and all of us have heard this too. Everybody has, seems to have heard this. You shall not commit adultery. It's Exodus twenty fourteen. For the Pharisees and for many Christians, just you know, splashing around in the in the kiddie pool of righteousness, that simply meant that we have to abstain from the final, consummate physical act of adultery, engaging in physical intimacy with someone who's not your spouse. That's that's what's in view there. Someone you're not married to. Everything else is fine. It's a you can look, but you cannot touch kind of thing, according to the Pharisees. Now, just two observations before we get really rolling here. First, I think you will miss the point of this if you read these verses and see no application beyond the technical categories that are here. Do you know what I mean? 
In other words, I don't think you will be on safe grounds to say things like, this has to do with adultery, and I'm not married. Or that woman or that man is not married. So this is not technically adultery. And so it therefore doesn't apply to me. Or if you say something like, this is speaking about a way that a man, a male, a man looks upon a woman to lust. And I'm not, if you're a woman, you'd say, well, I'm a woman, I'm not a man, so this isn't applicable to me. Jesus is basically giving a principle and teaching something very powerful and very important, very relevant to your life in that principle. And I, don't, I just think he didn't think it necessary to plug in every possible category. The way he applies this makes it plain to me that this is for us all. Married and unmarried, men and women. And so we should all listen carefully. Even if he doesn't specifically name your category here. Second, note with me that both of these ideas, that adultery is sinful and that lust is sinful, and that they're actually both in the Ten Commandments. They're both in the Ten Commandments. Um, Jesus leads with the Seventh Commandment, right? which is in Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, you, you could just read that by itself and think that lust is okay so long as you don't commit adultery, right? But you're actually just not reading all of the Ten Commandments because a few verses later, three verses later, Exodus 20, 17, it says explicitly using the same verbiage as our passage in Matthew 5. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet that word covet is arguably the exact same word. It's a different language, but exact same word is in Matthew 5. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. What Jesus is doing is simply putting together two truths, both clearly stated in the Ten Commandments. Adultery is sinful and lust is sinful. And what is new in Jesus' teaching is that he's equating these two sins. These are not two categories far removed. It's the same sin. One is carried out in the heart, and one is expressed in the body. So for shallow Pharisees and for so many Christians, the line in the sand is the final act, the the final physical expression of the desire. For Christ, the line is in the heart of man the heart of people. You don't need to merely keep the outside clean, as it were. You need to clean the heart. You need the inside of the cup clean. Jesus isn't just needling sinful touch. He's needling sinful eyes and sinful imagination and sinful longings in one's heart. That's where you need cleansing. That's where I need cleansing. Sin always begins in the heart. Our our sin is sinful, Long before visible expression. Do you, you realize? I mean, let me say that again. Get that. Sin is sinful long before it takes expression with our bodies or our mouths. I mean, listen to Jesus later in the book of Matthew. Matthew 15, 19. He says exactly that. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a man. A person. And I think that's mind-blowing. Most of us think in terms only of external pressures, right? External sin and external pressures. We think of it all of things you can see, right? 
So I think of the temptation to sin, and I, I think of a temptation out there in the world, right? At work, or on the internet, and I need to protect myself so that I won't go there and wreck things for my life and for my family. But Jesus teaches that this comes from inside of me, not just from outside. And that isn't to say that we shouldn't, that we should slack and being vigilant with what our eyes see and what kind of relationships we cultivate and with whom we spend time alone. But it is to say that the real issue is the heart, not all those things out there. A click away. The heart is where we need God's transforming grace. The heart is where we have to take the battle. And as you can see here, it is indeed a battle. It is indeed a battle, as real as any battle. And the stakes could not be higher. What's at stake in battle? People die. That's what's at stake here. Have you ever heard of a man named Aaron Ralston? Anyone? Any rock climbers in here? Aaron Ralston. Maybe you haven't, you don't recall the name, but you might have heard about what he did. He's a famous rock climber, really famous. Uh, and back in 2003, he was involved in a rather bizarre accident, incident situation uh, in the Blue John Canyon in Utah. Aaron was climbing alone and no one knew he was out there. He hadn't told anyone he was going. He, he did this a lot. He was descending uh, from a rock face and uh, a boulder shifted uh, as he was going down and crushed his hand, just crushed his hand. He couldn't pull it out. Like it was, it was there. And for days, for days, he was doing everything he could to move the boulder, trying everything, trying to leverage it with the tools that he had on him, trying to do whatever he could to get his hand free, right? But it, and also like to stay hydrated and to stay alive because that's an issue, right? And on day six, he realizes, you know what? It's uh. It's either going to be my life or my hand. We're not both making out. Of, we're not both coming out of here a lot. You know, the hand's not coming with me, or I'm I'm not going right. So he, with a, a I won't gross you out here, but with a multi-tool and a makeshift tourniquet uh, and some pretty earnest resolve, um, he chose the latter. He's he's his life, and he was able after that to repel down to safety. Single-handedly. <laughs> I'll just repent right there. <laughs> Heal up, write a book, and become famous. Uh, I, 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 I can't hear stories like that and think about what I would do, right? I mean, you, you hear a story about that and you're thinking, man, what would I do? Because that would hurt a lot, right? Well, what would I do? Would I go to, what, would, what would it take for me to go to such drastic and painful measures? What would it take you to do that? What would it take for us to do that? Let me read verses 29 and 30 again. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. There's a few people in church history who have read Jesus very literally on this point and done, they've, they did terrible things to themselves to keep from sinning. 
You, you, you can Google, don't do it now, but <laughs> you can Google a guy named Origen um, and you'll see what I mean. But most have understood Jesus to be speaking metaphorically and there is really, really solid reasons for that right here in this text, why you should take Jesus metaphorically here. For example, if I'm struggling with sin because of what I see and I recognize that, this is because of what I see and I decide, okay, I'm gonna take matters in my own hands, I'm gonna listen to Jesus, I'm gonna tear my eye out And so I do it, pop, there goes the eye. Am I then free from sinning? Am I free from even the sin that like, I mean, the the sad news is I still have my left eye, right? I got rid of my good eye, but I still have my left eye. I can still see plenty of evil with that. I'm not done with being tempted. It's perfectly capable. My one eye, perfectly capable of providing enough material material for me to lust after. And if I realize that, and then I take that one too, I still have my mind's eye, right? I still have my memory of all the garbage I've seen. I have enough material. So Jesus isn't suggesting literal self-mutilation to avoid sin, and that strategy wouldn't work anyway. What Jesus is teaching is that we must go to whatever lengths are necessary in our battle against sin. That's what he's teaching. Any length necessary. Aaron Ralston on the wall, realizing that hands gotta go or I'm gonna die. That's what he's teaching. There's no such thing as kind of fighting sin. There's no like, dabbling with sin and fighting it at the same time. It's kind of like that keto diet. You know that keto diet? Like um, you, you cut out carbs and sugar. Like it works. It really works. It works really well, but you're not going to lose any weight if you dabble with keto. It's not even helpful if you dabble with keto. I, I don't know that much about keto, but you, you know what I mean? Like you're eating all this bacon and like splurge on cinnamon buns for, you know, whatever. The whole thing's ruined. You're either in or you're out. You either go for this with your whole heart or forget it. That's what he's teaching. And it's, I mean, listen to Paul in Colossians. He speaks of mortifying, of of putting our sin to death, of executing sin. Listen to Colossians 3, 5 through 6. He says, put to death. I mean, that's so final, right? Right? Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And on account of these things, I'm going to make a point about this phrase too. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It's pretty drastic, right? Put to death. I mean, he doesn't say push the sin back a while while people are looking. But keep it alive so that when you're in your hotel room, on your business trip, in your, or in your basement alone, or spending an evening on Netflix or whatever, you can let the sin run around in your life a little bit. Paul says, execute it. Put it to death. Kill it. And you know why that's so important? Because if you don't kill that sin... That sin will kill you. John Owen, the British minister from the 17th century, said just that. He said it really well in his book, The Mortification of Sin. He says, be killing your sin. 
or it will be killing you. How many people, how many people ensnared finally by sin would say a hearty amen to that? Sin, which makes so many promises, which, which you know, on the outside is telling you it's so good and so desirable and so rewarding, will destroy us in the end. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Romans 8 teaches. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that's what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5. Cut off the hand if you need to, because it's better to lose that hand than to die. Pluck out the eye if you need to, because it's better to be a one-eyed guy in relationship with God than to be condemned forever and have both eyes wide open. The great reason why you should make war on your sin is because sin leads to hell. And I know you might recoil at hearing that. You might recoil. Americans recoil at hearing that these days. Preachers don't say things like that anymore. Mike, didn't you get the memo? We don't give not going to hell as a reason or a motivation to fight sin anymore. We don't do that. But yet two things give me confidence that I should do exactly that. First, the Bible doesn't shy back from doing that. I read 20 verses this week that helped me understand that the Bible talks just like that. I mean, listen to the Bible. Listen to Jesus, right? Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what that means? It's not like there's like some other place besides the kingdom of heaven that you can still like flourish. And again, Jesus, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Isn't he doing just what I said? Isn't he saying a threat of hell to motivate us? Or listen to Paul. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Again, Paul, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. The writer of Hebrews, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The New Testament, and this is just a sampling. It doesn't shy away from warnings like this, or, and, and it, it doesn't shy away from using those as a, like, a, like an impetus for urgency in our battle against sin. It states plainly what's at stake. And my friends, hell and heaven are at stake. So for the first reason, I feel confident. That first reason, I feel confident. The Bible talks about it just like that. I feel confident just stating that one motivation for you to make war on your sin is because sin leads to hell. My second reason that I feel totally confident saying that is because I am 100% sure that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. The gospel is not that a person who fights enough against a sin goes to heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel tells me that I can never fight enough. I'm sold under sin. That's the kind of language the Bible uses about me. I'm ensnared by sin. I'm condemned by my sin. Because of my sin, I have this huge gaping need of Christ. 
I have need of God's grace because of my sin, but God has shown me grace. Christ has paid my sin debt and I stand before him as righteous and my confidence, my faith is in Christ alone. And those two reasons might sound like they're in tension with one another, don't they? Kind of. But they're not. And just one reason why they're not is because you know what genuine faith in Christ looks like? Do you know what genuine faith in Christ looks like? I, I can tell you what it looks like, quickly even, and I can tell you what it doesn't look like. It looks like an all-out war on sin. Following Jesus means following Christ. And I can tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't mean taking my sin lightly. Or just let me put it a different way, okay? Not fighting my sin, not taking my sin lightly is certainly not a fruit of genuine faith. Do you see? And I want you to hear that in part as a motivation to wage war on your sin. Listen to how Paul put it to the Corinthians who had a significant issue in some of these very same areas. Listen to how he urges them and us to battle sin. Look at, look at how he, look at what he says is at stake here. And let's do that with our hearts confident in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Why don't you turn there with me? Just turn there. I want you to note this passage. I preached on it many years ago, but yeah. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteousness will, and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Huge warning. But then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I mean, isn't that sweet to our ears? This isn't us anymore. Like that old man that did those things and loved those things and didn't fight against those things. Not us anymore. By the grace of God, we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified in the name of Christ. That's the best motivation to wage war on your sin. Kill your sin because those who coddle it will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Kill your sin because it will kill you. It leads not only to like eternal damnation, it does lead to hell, but it leads to all kinds of suffering right now. All kinds of suffering. This is why I'm a biblical counselor because sin leads to suffering. Kill your sin because it will kill you if you don't. Kill your sin because it leads to hell and kill your sin because you are not that guy anymore. You're not that woman anymore. You've been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have this challenge before us to go all in and make war on our sin because we are in Christ and because we are empowered by the spirit and because we are no longer slaves to sin.
So that I believe is what we should see here in Matthew, the message here. We cannot view the big S sins as it were, the capital S sins, the outward sins of the body as if they require our full effort, at least to hide, right? They require our full effort because they're visible and then dabble and play with small s sins. It's not the case. There's no such thing as a small s sin. Sin is abhorrent to God. Sin is deadly. All sin is deadly. And to combat that pervasive sin and all sin, we have to make war on our sin with the kind of earnestness that a guy might cut off his hand to get off a rock. The kind of earnestness that plucks out the eye That's the message here. Make war on your sin with your confidence in Christ. Now, I know that I'm speaking to people who struggle with sin, and many of you struggle with exactly the sin that's in view here. Many of us struggle with exactly this sin, and I want to do two things in closing to encourage you in that battle. One, I want to give you a tool to help you fight this sin with your hope in Christ. And two, I want to give you a truth that you can hang your hat on. First, the tool. I've shared this before, so it's not new. Maybe not new to you. Maybe it is new to you. But it's something I found help, really helpful over the years. I first heard it at a conference on, on sin. Uh, and the speaker was John Piper. Uh, and it's called APTAT, A-P-T-A-T. It's an acronym. A-P, why don't you write this down? If, if, you, if you need help fighting sin, write this down. And this, this is a really good tool for fighting all sin. Anxiety, sexual sin, all of it. A-P-T-A-T. And you can use this like a multi, multi-tool when your hand gets crushed by a boulder. A is for admit. We just bear our, our sinful hearts before the Lord. I am tempted here, Lord. I want to do this thing. I'm tempted. My heart is sinful. I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, right? That's how the hymn goes. You pray and you just admit to God that you are this way. And then P is for pray. That's the asking God for help, his strength to overcome sin. The spirit which indwells all true believers, asking God to help you be filled with the spirit, following the direction of God's spirit, empowered by him to overcome sin and bear fruit in keeping with righteousness. We pray, and T is for trust. We trust that God will answer that prayer. We believe, we have faith. This is 100% in the will of God for your life, that you follow Christ. 100%. This is what God wants you to do. He wants you to follow Jesus and be holy in your life. So this is a prayer you can have confidence that he will answer. You can trust him to give you the power to overcome sin. You can believe. A is for act. And I think this step is vital. You must do something to change what's in front of you. And that means really practical things. Like if you're on your phone, put it down and go mow the lawn. You know what I mean? You following? If you're, if you're, uh, Go help someone. Go for a walk. Pull out your Bible and read some precious sin-fighting truth. Call your mom and catch up on things at home. That'll do it. (laughs) Get rid of Netflix. Buy a dumb phone. 
You have to act. That's what I'm saying. You need to act if you're truly going to be successful in your battle against sin. And that last T is for thank. And I think this one has two prongs to it. We thank God for every victory over sin. You know, every time you don't sin and you go God's way, that is a work of God's grace in your life. And you ought to, you ought to be so thankful for, to him for that. We thank. But I also look at thankfulness or gratitude as an incredible sin fighter. You, you start like coming before the Lord with thankfulness. Right, here's the truth. Here's the truth. Your heart cannot at the same time be full of gratitude towards God in Christ and be tempted to sin. Not at the same moment. You just don't have the capacity. So get before God and thank him. Now for a word of hope. There's your tool, a word of hope for you now because I know that these words feel heavy. They did to me as I was studying them. If you're thinking that Jesus's words are so heavy in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, because you can call to mind a struggle that never seems to end and that you rarely feel victory in and that you might've struggled with yesterday. If that's you, you're feeling that right now. Listen to this truth and park your car there. It's 1 John 2, 1 through 2. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the payment for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate in heaven. Our advocate right? He has paid our sin debt. That's what propitiation means. We don't stand before God covered by a righteousness that we've achieved somehow by being good Pharisees. It's not how we've achieved righteousness. Our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed righteousness given to us by God through faith in Christ alone. And now we stand safe under his advocacy. Safe. He bled, he died, he rose again so that sinners like me and you would be made holy and raised to newness of life. So as you fight this battle with blood earnest resolve, keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on the gospel. Let's pray together and then we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper and just in a special way, just encourage ourselves in what the Lord has done. Oh, Father, thank you so much for the words of Christ. And Lord, I pray that they would not fall on any deaf ears this morning. I pray that you will awaken any sleepy heart today to your righteousness, to the hope that we have in you, to your gospel, and to the deadliness of sin. Lord, help us not to be Pharisees. Help us not to fall into the same trap that they fell into and that led to their destruction. Lord, help us to turn to you by faith. And Lord, I pray that we would leave here resolved with our eyes on Christ to make war on our sin. 
In Jesus' name, amen.